Number 62 has been asked that we mark that, and certainly as we're happy to do that, and we will use that at the close of the lesson this morning. It is so good that God has blessed us with the opportunity to assemble and to gather in the way that He has today. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse number 1. As often as we make mention of those on our sick list, we are thankful that some are better and are able to be with us. And we still continue to remember the host of others that Roger mentioned in his announcements this morning. And as always, if you have additional names that should be added to that, hesitate not to let the person making the announcements to know that so that all of us can include those names on our prayer list. I would invite you for the next few moments this morning to think with me about a lesson entitled Attitude in Godly Service. The text that Brother Joey read a moment ago from the second chapter of 2 Corinthians was a passage that in many ways has a number of interesting characteristics, and we will consider but a couple of them in passing. But as we move along that way in the lesson, some at least thoughts to prompt us to this consideration of attitude might be these. It is always our interest and our sole interest at that to do indeed all things in the name of Christ and to do those things acceptable and pleasing in His sight. It's not our desire to merely do what we prefer due to convenience or otherwise, but merely to have a thus saith the Lord for the consideration and for the reasons to why you and I involve ourselves in what we do. As often as we think about that, at the bottom of that slide, though, are some interesting considerations, I suppose. The word attitude. You will search in vain to find that word in a number of the Bible translations. That word, in the very nature of its occurrence, simply is not there. In fact, as you'll notice in some of those considerations I mentioned, perhaps some of the most common ones. And in fact, even if you search through other ones, you'll find its occurrence is probably not more than a half dozen times, even in the other translations I haven't mentioned. Attitude, and yet all the while, as clear as it is, that word is not there. Is it not safe to say that the idea of attitude, the consideration of what it means is virtually on every page of the Word of God? He has always had an interest in your attitude and mine and the nature of attitude in regards to His service. It is that that I would invite us to consider for our lesson this morning. When you and I give thought to attitude, we'll look clearly at the nature of that attitude in godly service. Some additional considerations. First of all, maybe a definition. That word attitude simply means disposition. It simply has to do with the feeling of the mind, the way in which one looks at something. You and I have used that word so often. It's something that we well understand. We know what it means to discuss a person's attitude towards something. This morning, what do we mean by the nature of attitude toward service to our Heavenly Father? It goes without saying that obedience is absolutely demanded. That has been the case since the earliest epoch of time. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Genesis 6 verse 22. We notice much later that you and I are also admonished to always appreciate the need for obedience. Heaven awaits, doesn't it? According to Hebrews 5 verses 8 and following, the inspired writer said, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Your interest in mine is thus to simply do that which he has told us, 
But you'll notice perhaps one final time in Revelation 22, the inspired writer said, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. We all have a desire, I know, to enter the glorious climbs of that great and noble eternal celestial city. But you'll notice conditioned thereupon for entrance is obedience. I've said all that to say this. Clearly the Bible highlights that obedience, but notice this question. Does the Bible ever say anything about the nature of what prompts that obedience? What motivates it? Perhaps these questions would be in order. Why did you and I come here this morning? Why do we choose to assemble as we do when we do? Why do you and I choose to live in a way distinct and separate from no doubt many who are our friends, neighbors, and colleagues? Why do I not talk the way they do? Why do I not go the places they do? Is it simply because dad mom said so? Is it because I grew up in a house that is of that way? Do I come here this morning just because it's a habit? I do this every Sunday and no more. Is there anything about attitude that prompts us to think about the reasons as to why and the attitudes that should go with our obedience to our Heavenly Father? Those questions will motivate us and give some thought to what will follow next in the lesson this morning. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, a whole host of reasons, some no more than very poor ones at that, might be given by many in our world today for why they do what they do. When you and I obey the Master, let us look at some features that help us see a little bit more about this issue of the attitude that we ought to have. I'm sure that as we each give thought to that attitude, some of the items on this very brief slide will rather quickly come before us. You'll notice that we're admonished in texts like these. Jesus in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, He said, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I would invite you to think just a moment. It's possible then that one might give attention to reading some aspect of the Word of God, and that is always a good thing. But the Lord specifically pronounced a blessing on those who have a passionate hunger, those who have an innate and strong desire to thirst for it and hunger after it, as if for them it's far more than just an idle activity, not merely done just to fulfill what you might describe as a brief list of check marks. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are the ones that will be filled. That desire that should fill your heart and mind, a desire to come to know the Lord better, a desire to appreciate His being more clearly, a desire to draw ever closer to Him. Aren't we told in the New Testament, submit yourselves unto the Lord, draw nigh unto Him, and He will draw nigh to you. As we seek to draw nigh to Him, that describes a kind of thought, an attitude in which it's our desire it's a careful and strong appreciation of our being. I know that for many of us as we've assembled today, there was no other place on earth we would have preferred being than this one. Not because of anything special about the building, but because we understand how special it is to worship the Lord. And we know how great and a privilege it is to come together on this day as He has commanded and exalt Him, magnify Him and honor Him. And that's why we've come. 
We also know that in many instances how much bettered are we as a result of it. We're able to leave with a better feeling about ourselves in terms of knowing the Word of God, in terms of honoring the one who died for us, in terms of lifting high the cause and banner of His Word. As you can also see perhaps another passage that challenges us to think a bit about our attitude is that text, rather famous one at that in John 4. In verses 23 and 24 of that chapter, perhaps pinning most notably verse 24, the inspired writer said, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's safe to say, isn't it, that an individual might come to a place wherein the worship takes place, go through every one of the five admitted and approved motions of worship, and leave and never have pleased the Lord. Because his heart wasn't in it. Why he was there wasn't proper. His mind was wandering elsewhere and doing any number of other things, perhaps. His attitude was amiss. It does set before us the careful appreciation about attitude and worship, as well as in the other aspects of our service to the wonderful God in heaven. Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. That word spirit identifies an appreciation that includes motivation, includes the reasoning behind, includes the other features and aspects that go along with the actual carrying out of the things detailed. And so again, we might ask, why have I come today? Why have you come today? Is it because, again, someone said that we should? Was it because that, that it just seemed as if this was the place to be on a Sunday morning? Is it because I couldn't find anything better to do? Or why am I here because I truly want to be here? And I have an understanding that what takes place is truly not only for the benefit of the cause of God but quite frankly will be a strong element of appreciation in terms of aiding us to move about a life that ought to be pleasing. The reason why. Perhaps lastly on that slide you'll notice that there are a number of features in our obedience that are quite frankly more than just going through a set of motions. That even includes the plan of salvation, doesn't it? It isn't enough merely to dunk someone beneath water. That's not the same as baptism. The Lord said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There's belief that needs to precede it. There needs to be at least a degree of understanding about the basic characteristic of what's being done and what's accomplished by it. So you can see that the reason why often enters into some biblical passages even though the word attitude may not occur per se. Maybe one last example on that slide the example of the eunuch in Acts the 8th chapter. We find there that very penetrating example of this nobleman who had traveled for such a large distance and in the interest of what Philip had told him, namely about Jesus. It was he who in fact interrupted the sermon. And it was he who had said, Here is water, what doth hither me to be baptized? And at that point, wasn't it Philip who said, If thou believest, thou mayest? we see that there were some things this nobleman needed to understand and some truths he needed to appreciate. Your life and mine, as we highlight not only what God says, but the motivation behind it, how strong indeed will be our influence for all that God has set forth. As you can imagine, many, many things from the Word of God might be shared based on that. 
But let's use that to at least consider our attitude as we consider service to our fellow Christians, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the things that attitude touches is the very nature of the church. What, quite frankly, Randy Bybee, is your attitude toward the church? And you can put your name in that same slide, in that same sentence. Is your attitude toward the church as a particular noble institution? But other than that, there isn't much more positive I can say. How often have you and I had conversations with friends or perhaps associates in some way who quite frankly don't feel anywhere near about the church the way you and I do? They think it's optional in some cases. They think it's quite frankly non-essential. They think it's unimportant in many ways. And they have no deep appreciation for what it took to establish it. That, of course, leads us to think briefly about our attitude toward brothers and sisters, perhaps even in Christ. The church is a united thing, isn't it? The New Testament, as clearly as it teaches anything, teaches the nobility of the unity of the body of Christ. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling, Ephesians 4, verse 4. And when an inspired apostle made note that there is one body, three chapters earlier he identified what he meant by the word body. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, the inspired apostle on that occasion rather simply said, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That body then as the of the, the church, that is the body of Christ, is such that we notice there is but one of them. He, Colossians 1.18, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. We see so easily, do we not, the unity portrayed in the church. It takes us back to the very night prior to our Lord's crucifixion. When in such greatness of feeling and in such powerful reaction, the Lord said, Neither pray I for these alone, but yea, I pray also for all of them which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus thus died to establish but one body, we're reminded in Matthew 16, verse 18, that, as Peter on that occasion had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was Jesus who said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. You'll notice He promised, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church that our Savior purchased then is such a special organization. It's the only one His blood ever purchased. It's the only one that His blood ever bought. It is for that reason that some of these comments come before us. We're blessed at the Pippin congregation, of course, as any other congregation would be, to recognize individuals, individual men and women, boys and girls, who have expressed an interest and an acute desire to be as God would have them to be, they have made confession of the nature of the body of Christ, His greatness of His name, and they've been scripturally baptized into the body. As such, Christ added them to the church, and they constitute that body of believers in that community. 
Those individuals thus occupy a role of this very body. They are the one body in Christ. That oneness is highlighted in some of these phrases in some of these places. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see carefully in verses 11 and 12 of that chapter that Paul said, Just as surely as there are many members, they however make and constitute one body, just as Christ has one body. That one body is thus something today. We appreciate this group of individuals here, most with the sound of my voice, have in fact been enrolled in that body by the fact Christ added you to it. As you think about that, that then asks us to ponder the nature of this local body of Christ at Pippin. What's my attitude toward this congregation? What's your attitude toward it? Do we exemplify that in the language we use toward others in the world that we're about? Do we, in fact, insult, disgrace, and consider the church as something that others look upon poorly? Or do we lift high the greatness of the banner of what the church is in this locale? If we view by our attitude the church as special as the New Testament is, we will seek, in fact, to honor it by our language, speak highly of it by the nature of our interaction with it, because the church means that much to us. Think with me for a moment about Acts chapter 20. In that particular chapter, as Paul spoke to the elders of the church, now these were gentlemen who had been appointed and were occupying the role of elder of the church at Ephesus. It was to them that Paul, of course, had some very penetrating things to share. But among the things he said was this in Acts 20 verse 28, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. Pausing only at that point, we notice, Paul asserted to those men, and there was almost, it seems, a tear in his eye, when he in fact admitted to them that for three years I ceased not to teach and to preach and to warn daily, because he knew that when I depart, grievous wolves are going to come in. These grievous wolves will not spare the flock. These grievous wolves, in fact, will be such that they will strive to tear apart the blessedness and the sacred unity of that body. No wonder in verse 32 he said, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which shall be able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. No finer, no richer, no greater and more compelling words could Paul leave with those elders than men. You devote yourself to the book. And you ensure that the book is the highlighted feature of what governs all that's done. That's our desire at Pippin. That should be our desire to in fact illustrate by the things that we do day by day. The attitude toward the church maybe takes us in this direction. It is safe to say that throughout the ages and throughout the centuries, one of the most effective tools in the armory of the devil is this. In his interest to cause men to be lost or at least to assist in that way is to give the church a black eye, to cause people to want nothing to do with it, to cause them to look down upon it, to see it as that which is far less than what it is. And anything that he's able to do in order to bring that about just leads to victory, at least locally on his part. You and I know that then many things that can be done by you and me will in fact assist him in that effort. 
Look at some of these examples. When we give thought to the fact that He is a roaring lion, seeks whom He may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8, doesn't it remind us that when the world appreciates envy and ill will and malice and distrust and hypocrisy and quite frankly a far less practical importance in this book, they can see through that just like a ladder. They know when things are not as they ought to be. They know when life is such that we say one thing, do something else. Thus, might we ask about attitude again. If we love the church and we love our Lord and we know what He did for us at Calvary, it should in fact be far from our mind to think about behaving in ways like the bottom of that slide. We should in the clarity of voice be able to say just like Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. Can others look at your life and mine and see one who strives, just as Paul did, to follow the things of Christ? Will others be as interested in the things of truth if they follow what you and I do? May I ask you to ponder imitation for just a moment. It's often been said that imitation is one of the strongest degrees of consideration or flattery. But let's consider it more seriously than that for a moment. If someone else truly imitated your life, they strove to act, talk, and do all the things as you, would they be a good Christian? Would they be a person who could be a strong example for others? Or quite frankly, would it only weaken what they currently are? Would it only lead them to be less than what Christ would have them to be? Put yourself in that position for just a moment. Can you say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Would they see a lot of imitation in your life? Or would they see far too many examples that I really shouldn't be doing that, shouldn't be going there, shouldn't be talking like this? It does paint a rather dramatic picture, doesn't it? In Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, Paul even there said, be ye followers of me, imitate me in the love of Christ. The matter of that love perhaps brings us to the final section of this particular lesson this morning, at least for this portion of it. These comments take us back to that scene that Brother Joy read for us earlier. That scene in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me invite you to look at that passage again. As you and I think about attitude, notice how Paul's attitude is exemplified. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. We'll read the next verse in just a moment, but notice already the beautiful and rather positive things that Paul has stated. There came a time when he made his way to the city of Troas. And you notice immediately in verse number 12, the reason he came was to preach Christ's gospel. He hadn't come for any other purpose. He hadn't been motivated for this than anything associated otherwise than the fulfillment of his duties as a minister and servant of the gospel of God. But you'll notice as verse number 12 closes, he says, A door was opened unto me. There was success to be had. There were individuals responsive and attentive to the things of God. This sounds like a cause for celebration. It sounds like a great element of work for the work of God was done here in Troas. But verse 13 goes on to say this, I had no rest in my spirit 
Although we surely would have thought that there would have been a time of great rejoicing and celebration, Paul's attitude, it seems, was in preaching the gospel and a door had been opened, but yet, he says in verse 13, there was no rest in his spirit. Why, Paul? What had caused you to have no rest despite the fact the door had been opened and despite the fact that you'd come to Troas to preach? Verse 13 describes it like this, Because... I found not Titus, my brother. Titus wasn't there. Earlier we learned from the book of Acts, as well as some references in the Corinthian letter, that Paul was hopeful that Titus would bring him news and word that they had received that first Corinthian epistle. They had received it well, hopefully. That book of 1 Corinthians, as we know, was a very strong book letter. Paul rebuked them for many things not the least of which was their division. Their character of even partaking the Lord's Supper was amiss. Their failure in the spiritual gifts was noteworthy. They had failed to appreciate many things and Paul chastised them for it. Needless to say, he had some misgivings about the First Corinthian letter. How would they receive it? Would they receive it well? Would they repent? Would they in fact be drawn nearer to God? Or would they in defensiveness be driven further from the God who loved them. No wonder Paul was anxious. So when Titus wasn't where Paul hoped he would be, I found no rest in my spirit. I had no word from Titus. I didn't know how the Corinthians had received the word. Paul was concerned about the church in Corinth. He loved those brethren despite their problems. He loved those brethren despite the difficulties that they had faced and he wanted that church to be strong. He wanted that church to repent of its matters and come to its proper placement before God. And Paul, in fact, was so beset with those feelings that verse 13 says, "...taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia." Paul left Troas. Despite the open door that had been opened... Despite the success that was there, Paul left Troas in search of Titus so he could learn how things were going in Corinth. Do you and I care that much about the church? Really? Are we such that it bothers us when things are not as we think it should be and when things are not as it should be in the Word of God? Paul was so beset that finding not Titus, he left Troas and off to Macedonia he went. May we love the church to the point that we would give ourselves in defense of it, striving to make sure that we are faithful in that congregation, knowing that it's only those that will be ushered, of course, into heaven. Those who are those who have reached that age of accountability. This matter of attitude brings us then, doesn't it, to the last element in the lesson today. The answer that the New Testament gives to all of this matter of attitude. For it all centers around this. So many times Paul made note of it. And so many times the other New Testament inspired individuals recorded the thoughts of it for us. In 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1, 2, and 3. We're going to read that in just a moment. But to preface those, preface those comments... Let's at least think of them like this. The church in Corinth, again, just as many in that first century era, had the capability of miraculous gifts, able to do many things that to you and me would be astonishing and astounding, but yet even that was not the greatest of what ultimately would be. 
For even then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, the inspired writer so aptly pointed out that I show unto you a more excellent way. The very next verse defines for us that excellent way. And the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 read like this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And immediately in the midst of these discussions of the spiritual gifts and the other factors touching the church in Corinth, Paul very bluntly and very plainly said, let's think of it this way. If I'm able to speak in tongues, and they could in that day, that was one of the spiritual gifts. Paul said, if I'm able to speak in tongues, but yet if what motivates me in doing that is not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I'm just like a gong that you would hear in an orchestra. I carry not the message in the way that's proper and right. I'm basically just making noise. I am not acting in that way that would be pleasing unto God. Verse number 2. Though I have the gift of prophecy, and what a notable spiritual gift that was, the capability of setting forth the Word of God in such a potent and powerful way, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, and furthermore, all knowledge, and even if I have all faith, but yet, if it isn't motivated by love, he says, I am nothing. Finally, in verse 3, Suppose I'm benevolent in the sense that every person I hear of who's needy, I'll give them a shirt off my back if necessary. Suppose I give all my goods to feed the poor, not just some of them, but every penny I own. Suppose I give every bit of it to feed the poor, verse 3. And though I give my body even to be burned... Suppose in an act of selfless sacrifice, I literally allow someone to take a flammable substance, pour it over me and set me aflame in the interest of serving God. You'll notice he says in verse 3, If I have not charity, it profits me nothing. It is of no advantage to me. It's of no benefit to me. What then does that say about your attitude and mine this very morning? Why are we here? Why are we going about day by day the things that we do in the service of the Lord? Is it because of something that might fall into a category like these verses? Or is it because truly I am motivated by love? Love for the Lord. Love for the Scriptures. Love for the way He has detailed. Absolute love for Him because He is love. 1 John 4 verse 8. You see, we're commanded to love Him recognizing He first loved us, 1 John 4.10. It is with all that in mind that the last points on that slide are just very quick questions, things that we each can answer quickly if we'll just examine ourselves. Because quite frankly, if love is not what motivates us, quite often the thing that does is something on this list. Are you motivated by fear, by anxiety, or by doubt? If so, 
please realize God understands, but He wants you to be a far richer individual than that because that's not the ultimate reality of motivation. We're told in 1 John 4 that perfect love casteth out fear. You'll notice you might be motivated by selfishness. Much of that goes on in our world, doesn't it? Far from love, a person's motivated by what I want and what I prefer, and I have little interest in what you think, quite frankly. You'll notice that that's condemned in so many verses, not the least of which the very attitude of Jesus, for He sought not to serve Himself, but rather us. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. There are others who might be motivated by jealousy. They simply do things not because of an innate interest in their own selves, but because they want to hurt or tarnish or they want the glory over somebody else. That ought not be the motivation for our service to the Master, surely. Is it not true that envy is called the rottenness of the bones in Proverbs 14.30? It's like a decaying carcass. It's putrid, it smells bad, it's pitiful. But yet so much in our world is prompted by jealousy and envy, isn't it? May it never be so in your life or mine. Others are motivated by anger. They are able in a rage to fly into an activity and they do so, that being the prompting reason as to why it's often pursued. Paul admonished all of us, didn't he, in Ephesians 4? Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Be ye angry and sin not, Ephesians 4, 26 and 7. Apart from anger, some are motivated by inferiority. They quite frankly feel such a sense of self in terms of not appreciating the nature of the honor that God has devoted to them. Others are motivated by self-pity. They always think, woe is me, how bad is my state, and they always want the direction and attention from others. May these not be the motivating reason for our service in the church for our individual characteristics as human beings, but may we strive to honor the decrees of God, overcoming these faults if they're a part of our life, and striving to serve the God who loved us and sent His Son to die for us. What about the attitude for your service today? As we close this lesson, we shall do so with these thoughts. Our attitude... Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Is your attitude good today? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. If there are things that are openly amiss in a public way, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a psalm of encouragement. We'd be delighted to pray for you, to pray for forgiveness, to pray for continued strength that you might have the opportunity to overcome these matters. Attitude is something all of us can work on and become even better. As you've seen as our study this morning, attitude touches many things, including our view of the church. May our view be as proper as the Word of God sets it forth. If we could be of help to you this very day, it may be that there's someone in this audience that's never become a Christian. To this point, your attitude has been one of open defiance. Although you know Jesus died for you, to this point you've done nothing about it. You, in a defensive way, have said, I'm not interested in that blood. I'm not interested in salvation. Perhaps you've even had a mentality, I don't need it. Please think carefully about that point of view because, my friend, you're wrong. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. 
If you need to come before the Master today and perhaps to rethink your attitude, let us assist you and help you in any way that we can. And our interest is to do that even now while we stand and sing.